One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of the New Statesman podcast is supported by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code STATESMAN at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week George Eaton and I review the political year, Kate Mossman and Sophie McBain talk about travelling through Libya on the eve of the revolution and Ian Stedman, Juliet Jakes and I talk about great footballing feuds. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, to review the year in politics. George, first of all, let's cast our minds back to the summer of 2013. Um, Give me an idea of what the political situation was then. Well, then you had um, a Conservative Party that was starting to feel uh, slightly confident because the economy was picking up. And then, now famously, uh, Labour had what even its own MPs call a summer of silence, um, where most of the shadow cabinet seemed to have gone on holiday and uh, stopped thinking about politics until the conference season um, and then Ed Miliband was left with the task of, of turning it all round with his conference speech. It was a big dip, wasn't it? Because I remember the feeling was very much when that energy price freeze pledge came in that he'd sort of kind of saved it. He was on the kind of goalie and that had got mm. to the stage where actually things were looking really bad for them and then suddenly they were top of the pops again. Um, so the poll trend has been, as I understand it, pretty much flat. There hasn't been any major move in any direction, really. No, I mean, the Labour lead generally is slightly narrower than, than it was last year, but uh, Labour's still far enough ahead to to be in contention to win, if not far enough ahead for, um, you know, for it to be certain of, of forming the largest party, given that there is normally a, a swing back to, uh, to the government. And how has UKIP fared as the kind of wild card in the polls over the last mm. year? So I mean, UKIP has fallen off the radar slightly. I mean, Farage by his standards, has been unusually quiet in recent weeks. But um, it's still there. I mean, in fact, Lord Ashcroft's marginals poll yesterday showed that they're now in first place in Thurrock and in South Thanet. And uh, also that they've moved into second place in in Great Yarmouth, um, uh, pushing Labour into third. So I think the real threat to... The, the real UKIP threat to Labour, it's not that they're going to take seats off them in the north, it's that they're going to stop them winning Tory marginals uh, that they should normally pick up. So is that a, an electoral map that looks more and more like East Anglia and Kent and, and those kind of places are have, look like they have a really significant UKIP vote? Yes, I mean, areas where there has been high immigration and that is UKIP's number one issue. In fact, 
And there's a poll out today. It's the now regarded by most voters as the top issue facing the country, and eight points ahead of the economy, which shows you how the economy, which at some at certain points seemed to be the only issue in town, is now not going to sort of define the election to the extent that people previously thought. And is that a reflection of the fact that the media particularly have been talking so much about immigration? I mean, I think this is something that you've written about. Medi has certainly covered for us. The idea that if you constantly react to the threat of UKIP by talking about your own policies on immigration, you increase the salience of that as an issue. Mm. You make everybody think that that is, you know, we're sinking under the weight of all these immigrants. And suddenly people, I mean, we already know people wildly overestimate the number of immigrants there in the country, the number of people who are Muslim in the country. People's idea about what Britain is is not in tune with its its reality. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is that although people rank immigration as the top issue facing the country, they don't rank it as the top issue facing their family. And that's because a lot of people who are very hostile to immigration often live in areas of the country with very few immigrants at all. And, and that, um, um, presumably, the, the move away from the economy is, is hurting the Tories because their entire strategy was based on the idea that this would be an election fought on economic competence on which they have a pretty stonking mm. poll lead. That's right. And that's why Linton Crosby, in particular, is keen to avoid any distractions. He wants the election to be fought almost entirely on economic competence and on leadership. And you raise a terrifying prospect in your column this week about the idea that next year we could have two elections. We could Mm. end up in a situation where actually nobody wins a big enough majority that they feel confident in forming a government, even with Lib Dem support. A weird situation could happen where the Tories win most votes but not most seats. And then, I mean, you you mentioned this idea that the the Tories are the only ones who are really well-funded enough to fight a second election. Is that simply because their donor base is much larger, whereas Labour and Lib Dems are very short on cash? That's right. And also because Labour really are throwing everything at this election and they, they do want to win a majority, even even if that will be hard to achieve. And the Tories are building up a war chest of around £30 million. So they're raising something like a 100 grand a day, um, auctioning off tennis matches with Boris Johnson and David Cameron. And, um, and the Lib Dems are even in an even worse financial position. So I don't think... Your second election is necessarily likely, but it's certainly possible. And um, you do meet MPs who are who are very nervous about that prospect simply because um, it's, it's the Tories who would be in the best shape to, to fight again. The other thing I think is worth mentioning, um, the late, great, departed Raphael Baer, formerly of this parish, now The Guardian, um, wrote about the idea that you know, the, the Ed Miliband's greatest achievement is the thing that no one gives him credit for, which is the holding the, the party together. So... The National Policy Forum happened last weekend. It was astonishing how that was a total smooth, there were no bumps, there were no motions that were wildly, you know, kind mm. of out on a, on a limb. Do you think that that's a fair analysis, that, that Ed Miliband has kept the party together through caution and is not being given any credit for that? Um, the, I mean, I think he's been given some credit for it, but arguably not enough. And particularly given the circumstances in which he became leader, so by the narrowest of margins over David Miliband after the party had received just 29% of the vote. Um, But I think the trade unions can obviously do business with Ed Miliband in a way they couldn't with Tony Blair, and they even struggled to do with Gordon Brown. And Ed Miliband is a conciliator, and he doesn't... um, He's always said, I'm I'm not going to follow Tony Blair and David Cameron in, in deliberately picking fights with my party to show that I'm a strong leader or to show how I've changed... Um, and as a result, um, with, with with a few 
sort of exceptions, and I suppose Falkirk is the is is the big clash he had with the trade unions. Uh, there has been sort of far less blood spilled on the Labour carpet than than people would have expected. I think that's something that we definitely don't talk enough about. The idea that you you talk about how much you want in foreign policy, particularly you want compromise, but the idea that we're very excited that David Cameron comes back from Brussels having made an ultimately totally impotent and futile protest against John Claude Juncker being appointed to the European Commission, and the idea that you know that sort of foot stamping is kind of it's is rewarded even though it's damaging to the long term interests of the country. We're kind of, I guess we're just wedded to this gladiatorial idea of politics as being about great clashes, particularly, you know, things like PMQs definitely add to that. Um, finally, I'm going to ask you for a prediction. Do you think the polls will move at all over the summer? Uh, no, I wouldn't have thought so. Most people tune out of politics over the summer. So unless um, there's anything that happens to sort of take politics up the news agenda, then I would have, th- would have thought they'd be pretty steady until conference and then um, most parties normally get a bounce in their conferences often the picture then looks fairly similar after the conference the key is I think probably who ends the year ahead because if you look back at previous elections the party that starts the January before spring election ahead normally goes on to win it's quite hard um, it's quite rare that the, that the polls move then so if Labour is still ahead then that's when the Conservatives really will start to panic um at the moment by Tory standards they're incredibly disciplined mm. um and then you've always got the you know, the wild card events um obviously all parties have held back some big policy announcements for their conference um and then you've got um your other figures who will be re-emerging so you know N- Nigel Farage uh, we'll see. Right. I haven't eventually... seen him on the news for at yeah. least two weeks, which is kind of like a sort of <clears throat> a slight blessed relief after the Euro elections when he appeared to be everywhere all the time. Yeah. Um, so presumably he's been he's gone away and has done some sort of party infrastructure building, mm. um, which I know that there was some the concern the fact that UKIP was so heavily reliant on him as a media performer and maybe it didn't have the infrastructure that it needed. Um, well. I will sure we will t- talk more about this over the summer and we will look out for Nigel Farage on our TV screens. Um, thank you very much, George. This is Kate Mossman, arts editor of the New Statesman. I'm here with our assistant editor, Sophie McBain. Sophie's written a piece for the coming issue um, about a a fascinating, mysterious photographic expedition that she was sent on in Libya three years ago. Um, Sophie, why were you in Libya, to t- just to start? Um, well, so I'd moved there in 2008, and um, I'd worked for the UN Development Pro- uh, Programme there, and for the African Development Bank. And then I found myself in this slightly strange position where I was one of the few people who'd spent that much time in Libya and done the, the jobs that I'd done, um, which is why I then got asked to do this coffee table book. And what were you told about it? What was the what was the idea behind this book? So you were you were travelling with the photographer Charlie Waite. These photographs, by the way, are actually now on display on the South Bank. Is that correct? Yeah, there are two of them. Two of them on display there, and the rest of them are still lingering on his laptop. Um, uh, so yeah, we, the brief was really broad. We heard that it was a coffee table book to promote Libya's tourist attractions. And then gradually it became even broader because they started wanting chapters about Libyan politics and Libyan society, which are things I felt less comfortable about. And what was the situation politically at the time, just to recap? So this is 2011. 
just before it all kicked off, basically. Yeah, so at this point, Gaddafi's been in power for 41 years. Um, all effective opposition has basically been crushed. And there are the, there is this view that the country's opening up. Sanctions were lifted about five years earlier. The um, Gaddafi's son, Saif al-Islam, was being seen as this great moderate reformer who is bringing the West back to Libya. So there was this interest in getting Western tourists to Libya, even though the problem was that much as they wanted people to come, they didn't want to change the visa system to make it easy for people to come. But they just wanted to show the country as a, as a peaceful, beautiful place with loads of a varied, wonderful landscape and basically come come along and, and see these sites for yourself. Was that the idea behind the book, as far as you know? I think so, yeah. And I think the government had been getting lots of economic advisors in who were saying, you can't have 90% of your economy dependent on oil. Let's start promoting tourism. So I think that's where it came from. So when did you first realise that something was a little strange about this project? I think probably deep down inside, I knew it was a little bit odd when I started it. Um, because I've been in Libya long enough to know that um, that ev- everything in Libya tends to be a bit weird if you look at it for too long. Um, <laughs> and um, and then I think it was when I realised first I had this quite interesting access to government officials, and then the slightly mysterious setup with not being told precisely who the client was, suddenly having this minder who was monitoring me. Tell us about the guide, because he plays a, a big part in this piece, Khaled, who was called. Yeah, so he, um, we, yeah, Khaled and I had this quite strange relationship, because for about four months, we saw each other pretty much every day. Um, and he sorted out stuff like my, my Libyan visa, um, and then we just... Um, well, he tended to just take me on strange drives around Tripoli while he delivered money to different people. He never really explained why he was delivering money. I always assumed it was his private business interest. Various other fingers in different pies at the same time. Yeah, he was such a kind of super pragmatist wheeler dealer figure um, and had lots of kind of strange strange parts of his personality. So he's quite kind of wild and tough, but um, he wouldn't smoke in front of his parents, even though he's now in his 50s. So whenever I saw him, he used to have to have a cigarette first. Um, and yeah, he had very little faith in in my knowledge, but there was a guy called Farouk who worked at the British Embassy whose opinion he trusted on everything. Um, Tell us about the Benghazi experience as well, because that, that's where it, it really starts to to take a turn on the trip. Yeah, so that was, um, yeah, so we the, the first trip we went east, we went towards Benghazi and on the road towards Benghazi, um, Charlie asked to photograph these quite unusual, this quite unusual looking housing development. And as we drew up, I saw hundreds of police. First. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
and then, then probably about 50 men who are waving placards complaining about government corruption. Um, and I asked Khaled, oh, what's going on? And he said, oh, don't worry, Sophia, they're just happy. They finished work for the day <laughs> and then tried to get me back in the car. And then that was actually those small, really small protests were the very, very start of the revolution. And they were people complaining because these new houses were being built that were meant to be for ordinary workers. But actually, everyone getting into these new luxury flats where people had connections to the Gaddafi family and to the government. So the people for whom it was originally intended started getting very, very annoyed. And these protests were virtually unprecedented because in recent times, whenever people tried to rise up against the government, they were killed. Mm. So. so this, you were literally um, uh, very close to the wire with, with this this project because, am I right in thinking the photographer flew back home the night before it all kicked off? Or Yeah, yeah. So I can't really remember now whether the first big protest had happened in Benghazi the day be- the day he left or whether it was the day after he left. But things spread remarkably quickly. So he had the first really big protest in Benghazi and that was put down in a very bloody way. Um, and instantly these protests spread towards Tripoli and suddenly this country that had been a dictatorship but a very peaceful one for 41 years was a war zone. Was the book ever finished? Uh, no. no. <laughs> what happened to it? Did you ever get told why it had been dropped? Or? So they said, um, as you can understand, it's a war zone, so the next payment won't be forthcoming, and the book has been cancelled. So that was the explanation we got. Did you ever find out whether Gaddafi commissioned the book? I I never found out absolute confirmation, but Charlie says he asked someone at the Foreign Media Corporation who was who the client was, and um, in all these offices there were always big posters of Gaddafi, and he <laughs> he pointed to one of those posters but didn't say anything. So Charlie thinks he has confirmation. It's a, a piece of history that the photos and the piece itself we've got such an unusual angle on it from from having your piece so please do read this in the new issue of the new statesman and try and check out those photographs in the south bank gallery as well this episode of the new statesman podcast is supported by squarespace the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and simple to build your own professional website and online shop The easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools, responsive designs and 24-7 customer support teams based in New York and Dublin mean you can create a beautifully designed website for as little as £5 a month. This includes a free domain name when you sign up for a year. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code STATESMAN to get 10% off and show your support for the new Statesman. No credit card required. Start building your website today. Well, welcome to a new segment I like to call Ian and Juliet Ramble About Football. Um, fresh from talking about the World Cup, we decided to chat a little bit about a great football feuds. So, Juliet, what is your favourite footballing feud? Um, in terms of players disliking each other, there are some very, very funny ones. One of my favourites was between uh, Joey Barton and uh, a former Wolves uh, midfielder called Carl Henry, who um, <laughs> Carl Henry sort of kicked Joey Barton up in the air a few times. And Barton, you know, just thought, well, I'd never do that to anyone. Not uh, that sort of player. Uh, no, exactly. Not that sort of player. And um, Barton, uh, believe it or not, like was quite outspoken on Twitter about how much he disliked Carl Henry and was sort of write a load of stuff about Carl Henry as a hashtag it pub player. And then Barton, when QPR got relegated, got loaned to Olympic Marseille for a year, tried to look like kind of French intellectual. Um, Did he grow a beard? 
the proper kind of allo allo French he's accent. He's on the front cover of GQ. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, you know, Barton kind of gave it the big I am about how he's playing for Marseille now and, you know, they're one of Europe's great clubs and everything. And then Marseille, at the end of the season, decided not to keep him, packs him back off to QPR, where he suddenly found he had to play centre midfield alongside Carl Henry. <laughs> so that was beautiful. Um, the best football fight I've ever seen is probably between um, Francis Lee and Norman Hunter in the 1970s. Um, and this one's just absolutely brilliant. Like Francis Lee, kind of small, skillful, but, you know, quite gobby and, uh, you know, very kind of angry kind of player. And then Norman bites your legs Hunter, who was just known for kind of kicking people up in the air. Uh, but they just keep fighting. And like every time <laughs> they, sort of, they get separated, you see these kind of looks exchanged between them and, and, you know, these kind of angry bits of body language. And in the end, they fight again and get sent off. But what makes it just so brilliant is that they just... Once they've both been sent off, they just start fighting on their way to the tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a thing of great joy. I don't condone and that kind Well, the of commentators violence. would say nobody wants to see this, which... That's such a lie, though. Everybody wants to see it. Go <laughs> on YouTube and watch it now. It's Weren't brilliant. you asking during the World Cup for to try and find the, the most brawl? I wanted match. a game like Holland v Portugal in 2006. But I've seen two teams didn't really care about, like, uh, well, I don't know. Um, who did Colombia play in the second round? I can't remember, but... Um, uh, Uruguay. That would have been perfect. Actually, yeah, that um, was a that was a joy of a match to watch just because of how comprehensively Colombia spanked Uruguay. Yes, um, um, and Luis Suarez had to just cry somewhere and even by more. himself and or something. But yeah, I very few things are more enjoyable than a kind of proper twenty-two man kind of punch up, and I don't mean the sort of rubbish bits of shoving. Uh, which is just <laughs> embarrassing that you get in English games. Oh, that's a 22-man brawl. Like, that's not a brawl. It's, it's people saying he ain't worth it and pushing each other. Um, I mean, in terms of teams... What's, the, what's, the, what's this famous match you were telling me about with the number of like, 14 people? That was, that was Holland-Portugal in the yeah. 2006 World Cup. It was Portugal managed by Philippe, Louis-Philippe Scolari, whose team's sort of notorious for kind of gamesmanship and... Sly kind of cheating. In fact, the whole 2006 World Cup was really characterised by this sort of snide dishonesty and it's kind of one reason why Zidane's headbutt in the final was such a kind of iconic gesture because it was the only honest gesture of the whole tournament. Uh, you know, there's no attempt to sort of gain an advantage or deceive anybody. You know, it's just, you're annoying me, I'm going to headbutt you in the chest. Great. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so you've got this sort of really snide, unpleasant Portugal team and then this Holland team built around um, Mark van Bommel, who is, is one of the sort of... FIFA would describe him as combative, which means <laughs> yes. he's really dirty. Uh, and they had a few other players who, you know, were up for a scrap. Um, and it just kind of degenerates into this kind of just hilarious farce. You can watch all of the fouls on YouTube. It was about six minutes long. Um, there's just this sort of mad tackle after mad tackle is kind of play acting and rolling around and numerous red cards and the image of Portugal's Deco and Holland's Van Bronckhorst together on the naughty step is, is, uh, is, is just one of my favourite footballing images. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. But has football got more or less dirty? I mean, I, my first... Oh, much less. Much less, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't surprise me, but... Because of the just the increasing professionalisation, the money at stake. I think it's a good thing on the whole. Yeah, I mean, it means fewer players end up lo- ending their careers because they had such a bad mm. leg breaks or whatever, um, mm. which used to happen a lot more often. Um, but it's been replaced with a culture of um, more sly, time wasty tactics, mm. and and also the whole flopping thing, which you know a lot of people who don't <laughs> like. That you know, diving and, and oh, pre- you know, you get a slight you get a slight graze and you roll around holding your face and crying and shouting and the stuff. The trouble and... with that is though that now the replays I've watched a lot during the World Cup of just people just going you know just leaping <laughs> away from something that was going absolutely nowhere 
neither. There's no sanction for that, though, is there? No. Well, um, it happens it's, too often. It you can't sanction often, yeah. that many people. The, 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 <laughs> the defense of it is that um, a foul might be a foul that deserves to be called a foul by the ref, but the ref isn't going to see it because it's so subtle. Mm. So the player who's been fouled has to play it up to make it obvious that they've been fouled. But of course, it just lends itself to that kind of camp theatricality that annoys so many people. But then again, I also saw the German goalkeeper, who we all agree is a fantastic player, knee someone in the face. There are worse kneeings in the face from mm. German goalkeepers. This is the um, Schumacher <laughs> yeah, in Schumacher, 1982 sorry. against Battiston. And yeah, I mean, the, the Neuer one had nothing on that, really. Mm. Um, I mean, you you know, the game is still played at a very high pace. You know, people will kind of collide with each other, run into each other. Sometimes that's deliberate, sometimes mm. not. Um, you know, I mean, you hear people bemoaning the fact that football is no longer a contact sport at all. Um you know, I, I do like seeing some kind of meaty challenges going, but, you know, if I was mm. a player at the peak of his career and then got, like, a horrible, horrible leg break, I'd probably be less keen. Yeah. We've sort of moved away from the sort of feuds thing, um, and um, Ian and I were, were talking earlier, because uh, I support Norwich, Ian supports Wolves, mm. and we were talking about a sort of really incomprehensible feud between Wolves and Norwich that mm. I think dates back to the Wolves legend uh, Steve Bull. Uh, I think headbutting the Norwich... Yeah, he was all right, wasn't he? Centre forward, Ashley Ward. Yeah, I wasn't going to call him a legend. <laughs> this would have been, I think, the ninety-five to six season, something like that. Um, yeah. Twenty years ago. How old were oh, yeah. you in nineteen ninety-five? Uh, I was eight or nine. Right. Yeah, okay. So this is a nine. conflict that has shaped your life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's well, the, long the and thing, pointless. It's, it's one of those weird one-way rivalries where <laughs> Wolves fans aren't entirely aware of it. <laughs> but my understanding is that Norwich fans, it's kind of, it's been this burn. Oh, there's a chant at Norwich that goes, "We just hate Ipswich." Yeah, Wolves. Uh, I think Wolves might have just been replaced by Leeds now. We, a yeah. couple of years ago, because um, Leeds just sort of continually bankrupt, yeah. and Norwich signed about four players from Leeds in quick mm. succession. They can have some of them back. Um, <laughs> but, we did the same with Reading. And yeah, that, and, and they got really angry, yeah. and we started calling them our feeder club, and they seemed to find that patronising. Um, For some reason. And no. this, this is a pointless rivalry. That's a bit like in... into Saint Greasy talk <laughs> yeah. about the Ensley League as it, if it's important. Kind of, that's <laughs> what's happened, isn't it? But, you know, the way these sort of individual, um, these sort of feuds grow out of these sort of tiny things and mm. these embedded in these kind of narratives that go back. Does anyone know why Crystal Palace and Brighton hate each other? That, Not really. No yeah, it's really sure. an FA Cup game in yeah. the mid-70s, I think. I do remember it's... reading about it. I mean, some of them, you know, kind of obvious, sort of Celtic and Rangers, and Real Madrid and Barcelona with these sort of uh, really kind of grand and sweeping political narratives behind them. Um, yeah. And some of them are just kind of locality, really. I mean, yeah. Liverpool and Manchester United here is, is you know, it's just rivalry. These kind of two great industrial cities mm-hmm. that are vying to be the centre of power outside of London. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and then you get the, the really kind of weird and incomprehensible ones. I, I have heard that the in Germany the, the rivalry with England is viewed equally baffling like England fans <laughs> England fans are obsessed with but the we're ri- much better than the you rival- they think the, the key England rivals aren't Scotland and Wales anymore even though that's historically what they were um, it's Germany and Argentina and that's because of war it's yeah. it's not because of anything really well I mean there's the oh, hand of God thing in the 86 but it's mostly a war thing and the Germans find it really confusing that we consider them one of the main rivals. They, they kind of find it funny. Yeah. I think. There's a brilliant interview uh, from a few years ago with Franz Beckenbauer, and they're just he's in England talking about English football. And um, they talk about the, the rivalry, and Franz Beckenbauer just says, Look, you know, in Germany, we're far more bothered about kind of Holland, like we don't yeah. care about England. And, um, you know, one of the journalists just says, Well, you know, how did you feel about the. The five one when England won five one against Germany in the 
2002 World Cup qualifiers. And Franz Beckenbauer just kind of laughs and says, well, no one really thinks about it anymore. But I hear that in England, you can still buy it in shops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it was a single fact, that came out. Was and talking of Germany, Holland and England, the best bit of football kind of sledging ever, ever. I don't normally like it. I'm quite Corinthian about these things. I don't like sort of players kind of trying to psych each other out or psych people out on the pitch. But the 1974 World Cup final, West Germany v Holland in Germany. Holland get a penalty after the first minute. Germany haven't touched the ball and Holland are the favourites and they're the kind of popular choice to win. So Holland get this penalty and they've just completely blitzed West Germany. And Jack Taylor points to the penalty spot after the foul and Franz Beckenbauer just goes up to Jack Taylor and all he just says is, you're English. (laughs) And for the whole of the rest of the game, every decision goes West Germany's way because the referee just doesn't want to be seen to be kind of uh, favouring the team that are playing the Germans. So um, (laughs) that's just two words, magnificent. Yeah, Um, and uh, uh, also... um... The Germans, um, you know, Three Lions was his big anthem in 96. Uh, after Germany won in 96, yeah. They, yeah, they they started singing Three Lions, the, the team. Sarcastically. Well, yeah, they've, re- they've, they've reclaimed it. As, I don't know if they've reclaimed it. Well, they've, they've claimed it as their own kind of like their own football chanting song, which... Um, you know, probably rubs some people up the wrong way. Wow, it's hilarious. Yes. It See, I think that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it is funny, but yeah. That's right. On that Germanic harshness, I think, on the burn <laughs> instituted by Germany, I'll say thank you very much to Juliet and Ian. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Our theme tune is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons, and our producer is Philip Morn. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.